Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. It is always a great pleasure to study the Word of God together. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas, my friend Rabbi Dove Lipman in the land of Israel. Hello, my friend. How is the family in the land? Thank God. The land is going well. Everything's going well here. Thank God we... Uh celebrating this week another flight of uh, North American Jews who are coming back home with the Nefesh Benefesh organization, just seeing the fulfillment of the prophets of the ingathering of the exiles, and it's just a wonderful time to be here. Before we get into this week's Torah portion, let's take one minute and talk about the beautiful phenomenon known as Aliyah, the Hebrew word that means to go up. You and your family made Aliyah. You moved from the United States to Israel It's the legal immigration or legal moving to another country, but it's also a spiritual concept as well. Very spiritual. Uh, Let's remember that the land of Israel, uh, uh, you know, if you study the topography, it's not higher per se than other places. But when you move to Israel, you're moving up. You're doing Aliyah because we're talking about the spiritual elevation. When you leave Israel, you're doing Girida. You're going down because there's uh, spiritual loss uh, that happens. Uh, I'm not aware of any other immigration from one place to another uh, where you have that concept. So when we talk about the phenomenon of people from all over the world who are Jews moving to the land of the Jews, Israel, that makes it beautiful and complex with all the different languages and cultures and foods and dress codes and, and legal systems that people are coming from. So it's this ultimate melting pot. It really is. It's a, you know, I, I actually had this experience when I got to the Knesset. I at first was nervous about my American accent and how I would sound. And it was pointed out to me that every single person in Israel has an accent of some kind. We're a country of immigrants. You can hear when people are speaking Hebrew if they're from the former Soviet Union, Ethiopia, France, English-speaking countries, uh, Middle Eastern countries, North African countries. Uh, this is what it is, and uh, that's part of the beauty of it. And we thank God that he made a promise, and he kept a promise that I would gather my people from the four corners of the earth. Prophecies like Ezekiel and Jeremiah are coming true in front of our own eyes, including this week. It's unbelievable to be able to open the books of the prophets and to read words that you yourself are experiencing. Uh, in Gathering the Exiles, every time a tree grows in our land and throughout the week and throughout these months and throughout these years, there are things growing. Just looking around and seeing uh, self-determination for the Jewish people in their land, political independence, uh, it's all prophecies uh, coming true before our eyes, and it's just such a blessing uh, to live, for all of us, to live during this time, and for me and my family in particular, to live in Israel. It does encourage us to continue to be students of the Word of God and believers in the Word of God. So let's get to this week's parashah. The weekly Torah portion comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 16 through 21. To be exact, 
16, verse 18, until 21, verse 9 in the book of Deuteronomy. The Hebrew name for this Torah portion is Shoftim, which means judges, because that's exactly how the portion begins. Chapter 16, verse 18, you shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So as we talked about in the last portion, Moses is giving instructions to the people outside the promised land. They are about to enter the land, but he is not. And he's setting up the system so they will live godly lives, righteous lives, protected lives, organized lives in the land. And part of that is the whole idea of civil government. And that, Pastor, was actually a revolutionary concept. We're talking about a world that was uncivilized, that didn't have uh, court systems, that didn't have necessarily police forces in the, in the civilized construct of the word. And uh, this is part of, I think, the Judeo-Christian ethic that we brought to the world. And it's an integral part of the Torah. There are judges, there are police. They should be everywhere, instructing judges not to take bribery, to always pursue justice, to be able to make sure that everything is done in the proper way. That was a revolution. And the Torah, the Bible here, is not just about ritual commandments, such as the holidays or prayer or the temple, but it's also in day-to-day life, how we act with each other, what we call between man and fellow man. And that's a a, a critical uh, element of, of our faith. The second verse of the portion, Deuteronomy 16, verse 19 says, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial. And this is a reminder that all of us are equal in the sight of the Lord. All of us are created in the image of God, says Genesis chapter 1. And Rabbi, you and I talk about news and politics a lot. This is the idea that the Jewish people are the chosen people, but as you say, not better than everyone else. And when you're talking about Middle East politics, the Jew and the Arab are different in God's kingdom, but yet equal in his sight because both equally valid and, and, and valuable to the Heavenly Father. And so we're to not show justice or partiality because we're to consider every person to have value in God's eyes. And that's part of the beauty of the establishment of the state of Israel. And this cannot be spoken about enough. We have to keep talking about it wherever we go. And that is in the Middle East, a place which is so polarized and ruled by religions that do not provide religious freedom where there's zero tolerance for the other, where Christians and Jews cannot go as they wish to any country and worship, Uh, Israel was established, and in the Declaration of Independence, it made it clear, yes, it's a Jewish state, and it must be a Jewish state. That's what we're establishing here. But part of being a Jewish state is equality to all the minorities, to other faiths that's enshrined there in the Declaration. And it's amazing to see that in 1948, while we're fighting our Arab neighbors, many who are going to end up citizens of our country within our borders, we still had the ability to see the truth, to see what Judaism stands for, that all people are created in God's image, and we can live peacefully with one another, and we view it as a Jewish value in a Jewish state, to provide all faiths the opportunity to worship as they choose within our state. This concept of showing no favoritism to other people is an Old Testament concept. It's, of course, also a New Testament concept. In the book of James, chapter 2, and I'll remind our listeners that James was the 
brother of Jesus. And he said in chapter 2, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. That's a pretty black and white statement. That's exactly right. And this is something which we certainly agree on. And uh, you've been here, Pastor. You've walked around in Jerusalem. Uh, it is a beautiful sight to see. There are actually moments where you could actually have the, the, the bells going off in the churches, the call to Muslim prayer, and you could be standing in a place where Jews are praying. You see it all uh, coming together so beautifully, and that's, that's living proof to uh, this Jewish value uh, which we share of all people being created in God's image. Continuing in Deuteronomy 16, you come to the last two verses, verses 21 and 22, and it's a reminder that there is a religious component, a spiritual component to having a civilized society. And we could talk about modern Israel, we can talk about modern America, that you cannot and should not separate religion from the culture. But it says, do not plant for yourself an Asherah, uh, neither set up for yourself, verse 22, a sacred pillar. Asherah is an idol to the female goddess, the consort or the wife, if you will, of the male god Baal. So to have a civilized society where people are treated equally, there is a spiritual component. Do not worship false gods connected to it. I think it's important that that follows immediately because uh, people can very easily think to themselves, okay, so it's all about having a civilized society. I'll be a good person. I hear this often, uh, certainly when I was to teach in college campuses uh, about spirituality and faith. Why isn't it good enough to be a good person, right? And on a certain level, people are right. You want to be a good person. But God is reminding us immediately that it's not just about having a civilized society and being nice to one another. It has to be rooted and grounded in the concept that there is a, a God and that there are, are spiritual tenets that we have to keep to. That was the last verse of chapter 16. So the next verse is verse 1 of 17. And I'll remind our Jewish and Christian listeners that these chapter divisions were added, in this case, about 3,000 years after the writing of the Torah. So they were added for study purposes. So chapter 16, verse 22, and 17, verse 1 are connected thoughts in that case. Don't set up for yourselves a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. Next verse, do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. And so the point I'm making is there's a connection between don't serve a false god, but also don't serve the true God in a way that really costs you nothing. That is true. And uh, the, the, the command about, about the blemishes, I mean, we certainly understand it, that you want to bring, you know, the Torah, the Torah uses a very strong language, that's an abomination. And it's critical to everyone to realize, it's not, it's not inherently an abomination. There's nothing, God does not need our respect. He doesn't need the animal to be the best animal, but it's a reflection upon us. How could we possibly, it's, it's an abomination, because how could we possibly think to bring God anything other than the best and other than, other, than that, other than that which is perfect? There is the idea of punishing those who disobey God. And this is a difficult passage and one we need to talk about for a moment. Chapter 17, verse 2, If there's found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord by transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun of the moon, or any of the heavenly host, 
If it's told you and you have heard of it, you shall inquire thoroughly. And if it's true that this detestable thing has been done, you shall bring out that man or woman who has done this evil to your gates. You shall stone them to death. On this evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So there's a whole lot here in just a few verses. Let's start at the lesser, which is you can't take just one witness. You have to have two or three. That prevents somebody from being a liar, breaking the commandment of you shall not bear false witness, and accusing someone of a crime or, in this case, a spiritual sin, and them being convicted for it. So you need two or three witnesses to verify the action. But also the bigger question is, how seriously does Moses, and beyond that, how seriously does God take the danger of a person in the midst of the people of God leading to worship of false gods? We talk a lot, and the Talmud actually talks about it a lot, about the responsibility that people have towards others. And there's one thing if a person is sinning on his own, and of course they're responsible for their actions. But you can have a desire, and people give in sometimes to and do the wrong things, and, and not that we don't suffer for it, but that's one level. But um, the moment uh, it's, it's someone who has the ability to influence others, and a lot of this activity, especially back then, the idol worship in particular, had the ability to do so, there had to be deterrent. There had to be something which provided people with the recognition that we want to stay away from that. And that's why the people were active uh, in the punishment that was carried out. Uh, people had to see it. There was an idea of uh, instilling fear in people by, by seeing what happens to one who goes astray and doing everything possible to keep it limited in scope and not to spread. We see later on in the prophets how it spread and how it spread like wildfire amongst all the nations, uh, and that's what we're trying to prevent, and that's what this system uh, puts into place. It shows how dangerous it was at the beginning of the formation of a new nation to allow these pagan influences to come in, how dangerous it was to let that continue. And the severity of the punishment, I think, is related to how, again, dangerous or critical it was to not let that spread. So the leaders are responsible for creating this governmental system once they get into the new land. As you said, it has a civil component about lawsuits and police and those kind of things, as well as a spiritual component. And as we continue through chapter 17, you get to verse 8, and you, the whole section here begins with these words, if any case is too difficult for you to decide. So what's the teaching here? How are they going to deal with these questions that seem too hard to answer? And, and that's where there was a whole system in place. If we go back for a moment to Exodus, to the portion of Jethro, or Yitro, where he told Moses that there has to be some kind of a system. So there are courts in every single city, in every single neighborhood, in every single state. Uh, but when things are too difficult, there was the high court. And that high court sits not in some big courthouse somewhere, but it sits right by the temple. We're talking about people who were great uh, spiritual, uh, spiritual leaders who were able to see things clearly, who had deeper understanding of the law, and people could know. 
that there was a system in place, similar to the concept of you know, district courts and then moving your way up towards the Supreme Court. Uh, but here the Supreme Court were the spiritual leaders of the people, and they were the ones who uh, people were required to listen to whatever they say. For example, in verse 11, it says, whatever they teach you, uh, whatever the judgment is, you have to follow. And then it says, do not veer from what they say to the right or to the left. Whatever they decide, that's the law. It's coming from God. That's what's symbolized by being in the temple. And I think that gave people the confidence as well to be able to accept the judgments because they understood that ultimately it was coming from divine inspiration. The importance of a civil system and everybody agreeing to play by the same rules is what we're talking about. And we continue through chapter 17 and we get to verse 14 and it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Now, this is sort of a prophecy, a prediction, and we know it comes true in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. It says, All the elder, elders gathered together and came to Samuel, who was a prophet, and they said, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. All right, here's my question, Rabbi. Was it God's desire for the people to only look to him as their king, meaning a theocracy, direct rule by God, or was it his design for them to have a monarchy, an earthly king, or was their desire for a monarchy that they wanted to be like all the other nations, which as parents we know we tell our kids just because somebody else is doing it doesn't mean it's right. So I have a lot of questions for you on this passage. Okay, so the commentaries certainly, certainly discuss this. They struggle. The biggest, uh, the biggest question is, on the one hand, you have God over here commanding that there should be a king. And there's no doubt God is saying in verse 15, you shall place upon yourselves a king. Remember the following words, that God will choose. And, but the ideal government uh, is not, and we talk about the beauty of democracy, and it certainly is wonderful amongst man-based, human-based uh, governments and ruling, but the ideal scenario, I mean, democracy has all of its flaws, and the ideal is a monarch based on the word of God, and um, that monarch, actually, the commentaries talk about is someone who represents God. I want to be very careful how I say this. He's not an idol. Uh, but he's a being who shows the people spirituality and directs the people towards God. And in fact, the key word is the third word in that verse 15, som tasim alecha melech. You're going to have a king upon you, the third word, above you, over you. Uh, when the people later on ask for a king in the book of Samuel, they say, give us a king. They don't say place upon us a king. This was a king who they wanted to be able to manipulate and maneuver and rule according to what they wanted. This was not placed upon us a king who was going to be God's chosen one and spiritual. And that's where the gap took place. So when you ask the question, is it God's desire, the answer is yes. But it's the kind of king that he talked about here in Deuteronomy and not the kind of king which they asked for uh, in the book of Samuel. So you're saying in verses 14 and 15 here of Deuteronomy 17 that this is not the Lord prophesying, saying this is what you will want and I will let you do what you choose, but you're saying instead 
I will direct this or this is my plan for you. That's correct. Now, there are commentaries who do suggest that perhaps this is just foretelling the future and what's going to be, but, but uh, I certainly, when I read it, uh, it just doesn't uh, sound that way. It sounds like, yes, the people will want it, but God says the only uh, scenario that uh, I want you to have is, yes, I want you to have a king. It's not simply because you feel the need to have one. I want, of course, you want to have some kind of a political apparatus, but this is the way you have to do it. Um, it's clear that the scenario was supposed to be uh, that the people reach a point where they feel they're ready for it, they need it, they've settled the land, they're ready to start establishing a government. So God doesn't tell them when to do it. It's based on their coming and saying, okay, we've inherited the land. We've settled it, and now, of course, the next step is going to be, we need some kind of governance. Here's how you should go about doing it. So how does the king rule is the next question, and you get to Deuteronomy 17, 16. He shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself, and he is to write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So the responsibilities of the king are, first of all, don't depend on human military strength. Don't multiply your horses. Now, I think that means don't depend on, as I said, military strength for humans, but also I'll remind us that where would this king go to get horses? He would have to go back to the place where they're most skilled and plentiful in use of horses, and that's back to Egypt. So you don't want to go back to where you came from as a slave. Then the prohibition against taking many wives is about going into political alliances, because this is how the game worked back then. Your son would marry my daughter, and now we're in a political alliance, and we won't go to war against each other. Well, if the alliance is made with a pagan group of people, you're setting yourself up for spiritual trouble. And also, foreign wives can lead the king to worship a false god. And then it also says, you shall not have uh, greatly increasing your silver or gold in verse 17. So don't be a greedy person. So the king that God would want you to have, Rabbi, according to your theory, is a king who doesn't fall into these various types of sins. And as has happened with so many other warnings, uh, we see that it played out in the negative way, and people did fall to all this. But the ideal is someone who follows God's commands, uh, who actually has a Torah with him at all times. He's a person who's motivated only by spirituality, only by God's desires, follows the commandments, uh, takes into account the the prohibitions that protect him uh, from falling spiritually, that's the ideal scenario, and that's what God commands here uh, that people should have. So verse 19 of chapter 17 is a major principle for people who want to be godly leaders, that if you're going to lead, you need to have the word of God with him. Verse 19, he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up among his countrymen. So you're to be a leader who knows God, who knows the word of God, and you're not above, you're not better than the people. You work and lead and serve God alongside the people. This sounds like a great lesson for godly leaders. 
Absolutely. And the idea of not letting it get to your head, not thinking that you're superior. You know, I think to myself of, uh, I've read this as an example of President Truman finishing his term, going back to his house, going for walks, uh, just a regular person uh, who happens to be in a position of leadership. Uh, that's very much uh, the message, to never let it get to our heads. And and the spirituality which surrounded him and the Torah which he carried was supposed to help him uh, accomplish that difficult, difficult feat uh, of maintaining your equilibrium and maintaining your humility uh, despite all the power that you have. And now we must change subjects going into chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, and it talks about the Levites and the priests, and I'll remind us what Rabbi Lippman has taught us, that all Priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests, and they come from the tribe of Levi, which is a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. So we'll get into some of these specific verses, but give us this sense here. What are the duties of both the priests and Levites? So there's a very clear division of duties. Uh, The priests were the ones who actually offered the sacrifices. That's number one. Uh, They're the ones who, when people brought a sacrifice, they would offer them, they would do all the slaughtering, the the work related to it. The Levites were people who did singing. There was always singing going on uh, in the temple during the offerings. They uh, were also people who were like the guardsmen. They uh, guarded the gates uh, of the temple and were sort of the door people as people wanted to come in. And these were the roles uh, that they had. Today, we obviously don't have those roles, but then they were divided into 24 groups. They divided the year. Every family knew exactly when they were on duty. When they weren't on duty, they still were involved in spiritual things and not the agricultural world. And uh, they were the spiritual leadership of the people, and that's why they were supported by the people. And the the Bible here goes into very clear uh, description over what portions they were able to take and uh, how they sustained themselves based on these sacrifices and offerings. And the reason they need to be supported by the people is because verse 1 says, The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. So unlike the other tribes, they didn't get a piece of territory of the land that they could farm and grow animals and crops on and sell to make money. They were dependent upon the support of their fellow people. Exactly. And uh, this created a relationship where the people on the one hand felt that they were supporting uh, their spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders realized that the people around them uh, were looking to them for that leadership and were uh, showing their appreciation by giving uh, these tithes. And there's no doubt that that relationship was very, very uh, deliberate in terms of how the, the mechanism was set up, they could focus on spirituality. That was the ideal. They could focus on spirituality, and everyone else realized that they were their spiritual leaders. Let's go to verse 9 of chapter 18, and it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. And it goes on to talk about witchcraft and sorcery and mediums, And these things are detestable to the Lord. Verse 13, you shall be blameless before the Lord. So we have to be conscious of the crowd we hang out with. We have to be conscious of the crowds our kids hang out with and and surround ourselves with godly people who believe in the Bible and live by the Bible while also being an example to those who do not yet know God. 
And it's difficult for us, I think, to sometimes relate to uh, some of these commandments. I mean, how many people today are, are pulled towards witchcraft and other things that are described in these verses? But I think the most important thing to remember is that was the challenge at their time. Those were the things that were pulling them away from God and spirituality in their time. And we have to make the association to those things in our times. And exactly as you said, a pastor, uh, taking note of who we associate with and our children, our families, people around us. The, we have teachings in our tradition about good neighbors versus bad neighbors in terms of the influence that people have on one another. And we have to make our own association to the challenges that we have in our time, which pull us away from spirituality. Rabbi, I'd like to show our Christian listeners something that we believe is a messianic prophecy. Here we are in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Verse 18, the Lord says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So as Christians, we read these verses, and of course we look ahead to messianic prophecies that we believe were fulfilled in Jesus. And so I I ask you, do you as a Jewish scholar, do you look at these also as messianic prophecies? Well, uh, the, the most important thing that's being established is that God is saying there is prophecy. We don't necessarily say that it goes to the Messianic time, because we believe there are prophets all the way through. And God is saying, I do communicate to you through others, through human beings. Uh, they're not gods, they're not to be worshipped, but they do represent me and listen to their words as the word of God. There's no doubt that according to our tradition, the Messiah will be one of those people as well, but we don't view it as limited uh, to the Messiah. Uh, sadly, we do not have prophecy today, but we actually have a whole series of rules about what prophets were and how a person achieved prophecy. And how do you know that he is, uh, in fact, a true prophet? Uh, those are all things uh, which we find throughout our tradition, and that's the way we understand uh, these specific verses. And one of the things that you just mentioned about testing if a prophet is really of God, it's addressed here in the last verse of chapter 18, verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So a prophet is given that credibility or that respect if what he says will happen actually does happen. And that's uh, clear. That's part of the test uh, of, the, of the prophet. You know, the, does, does he say something and it actually comes true? And it can't be something which is just run-of-the-mill, everyday type of things that anyone could say, uh, but there were a series of tests to see. And I will say that according to our tradition, one of those rules was that he can't tell you stop keeping the rules of the Torah. If a prophet would come and say, don't keep this law or that law, that in and of itself uh, is an impossibility. So they have to be consistent with what it says in the Torah. And then it could be anything else within the realm of the world, but something which uh, would, would prove that he has this capacity. Now let's get into chapter 19 of Deuteronomy. And it's talking about the people going in to possess a land. And it says, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and their houses, 
you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord God gives you to possess, and prepare roads for yourself, divide them into the three parts of the territory of your land, so that any manslayer may flee there. And then it goes into the idea of what we've talked about in the previous conversations, cities of refuge, where if a person commits a murder accidentally or is accused of what we call manslaughter today they have a place where they can go and they will not be avenged they'll not be killed by the family member surviving of the person who was lost but it's where a trial could take place to see actually what happened tell us a little bit more about cities of refuge fascinating law where it talks about someone who kills someone else by accident. If someone kills someone on purpose and there are witnesses, that's a capital crime and we have capital punishment uh, for that. Uh, I will say that we try to do everything we can not to reach capital punishment because we ultimately believe that's in the hands of God and there are very, very strict criteria uh, in order to reach the point uh, where there is uh, capital punishment. But if someone kills someone else by accident, so you might say, wait a minute, it's an accident. Why does he have to do anything? We don't believe that anything is happenstance. Uh, if somehow uh, somebody ended up killing someone, even by accident, there's some guilt there for other things that they've done. God, as it were, uses the guilty uh, in order to carry out horrible acts. And therefore, the person does have to go to a place of refuge. There are cities that are set aside for these places of refuge. There were three uh, established on the eastern side of the Jordan, three on the western side of the Jordan, but then all the Levite cities were cities of refuge as well, another 42. So you have 48 altogether. And the person could run there. The person who killed someone else by accident could run there to avoid the relatives of the person who was killed uh, carrying out retribution. What's amazing is if the relative reaches that person before he gets to that city, there's a discussion about exactly how does that work. He is not liable for having killed someone. The Torah actually allows for the human emotion of wanting to take uh, uh, revenge or uh, the, uh, avenge the honor of the person who was killed and gives that opportunity, but again, within the framework which God provides. difficult for us to, to, in our world today, I think, to imagine this system, uh, but it's fascinating to see uh, exactly how it was put into place. This is a reminder of the value of human life. Again, as we mentioned, Genesis 1, every person created in the image of God, so life is a gift from God. It is valuable. It should be protected. That's why there is the strong opposition to abortion by most people who are Bible believers and because they believe that life is a gift from God. So talk about the positive side of this we have the negative side of you have to punish someone who commits a murder of course but there's the positive side of god values life as a gift from him absolutely and this is something which uh we celebrate life i think both of our faiths are are, are right on the same page with this in terms of how we celebrate life uh life is a gift life is not something which we have the uh, capacity to touch uh, it's sacred. We celebrate life. We try to do everything possible to avoid death, and, and death is a tragedy. Whenever it happens, wherever it happens, it's sad. Uh, this is something which we live. The Bible says uh, elsewhere, live through this. The point is to live. Uh, life is something which is so precious, and every single moment of life is precious, even if we can't understand sometimes why it's precious when we see people who are gravely ill, when we see people who can't really function, uh, but we still understand that every moment of life is valuable and a person can grow spiritually, and it's in God's hands to deal with those issues and not ours. 
as we get to the end of chapter 19, it talks about the way to handle what is expected. And that is, unfortunately, people will lie. People will accuse people wrongly of crimes. And so as it mentions earlier, verse 15 talks about you must have two or three witnesses to confirm a matter. And so it's trying to discourage dishonesty and encourage honesty, even if the honesty is related to convicting someone of a crime. Absolutely. And uh, the whole idea of the witnesses uh, the witnesses are grilled. These are not two people who just come along and say, yeah, I think I saw so-and-so doing this. A person can only be convicted if two witnesses see it. They uh, can establish it after all the questions that are asked beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then they have to be involved in the punishment. They have to be able to actually carry out the punishment to that person and not distance themselves, slander someone, and then walk off uh, into the sunset while someone else uh, does the dirty work. And that's a responsibility of being a witness and really feeling that you, uh, knowing convincingly that you saw it and this person needs to be punished. It's a brilliant system, actually, in terms of how to go about it. It's a rule. There's no judge who sits back and decides if it's just circumstantial evidence, person's not punished for it. They could put a person in jail if they felt they were in danger, but in terms of actually carrying out punishment, it's only in the system of witnesses and the witnesses being verified to as, as clear a degree as we can. Not only are you protecting the innocent one who is accused, but you're trying to discourage false testimony by saying in verses 18 and 19 that if a person makes a false accusation and it's proven that that is false, then the punishment that would have gone to the guilty party is placed upon the false accuser. And that's an uh, incredible law, which at first glance doesn't necessarily make much sense. It's called Aid Zomem. And it's viewed as a law from Moses at Sinai with no real explanation for it, because the rule is anyone uh, who accuses someone falsely and it's proven that they were not in that place at that time to be able to give this testimony, then in that situation, they're given the punishment. And let's say two new witnesses come along and say, but you guys were in the same place. And it continues down the chain. Whoever was last on that chain uh, is the one who is believed and everyone along the process is viewed as this aid zone name and given the punishment of what they were trying to do to the person before them. All of this helping to try to create a civil society, a godly society, when the people enter the promised land. And we remind ourselves as we look at the big picture that this is to set up what you hope will be a place of peace and worship and partnership and friendship and God-honoring lives, and unfortunately, because of the sinful human nature, you've got to prepare for these things that undoubtedly will occur. Now, we just have a little bit left here in this week's Torah portion. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we sort of switch gears here. And Rabbi, this is going to talk about some stuff that you've really dedicated your life to, which I want to talk about in a moment. But in the first verses, it says, don't be afraid of your enemies when you see horses and chariots that are more numerous than you. Verse 1, for the Lord your God is with you. So don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in military might. Trust in God no matter what the circumstance is. Exactly right. This is, this is such a critical point, which we 
uh, see emphasized over and over again in the Bible, and it's the story of our existence, and that is, it's ultimately God, and uh, the only way we can win is with that faith in God, and to recognize that it's never going to be our spirit, our, our physical might. Yes, you have to have a good army, yes, you have to have good strategy, you have to have good generals, and you have to do your part. But when it's all said and done, God is the one who makes that happen. And that's why the Bible and God goes as far as saying, if you don't believe that, you're a detriment. You can be the greatest, strongest warrior or the best soldier if you're not in a spiritual place where you know that it's God who provides it, or if you're afraid of any of your sins and you feel that maybe spiritually you can hurt the army, you're supposed to actually go home. And I'll finish this little section with verses 3 and 4. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before you. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Rabbi, our faith would be stronger if we would remember that God is always on the side of his people doing his will. Exactly right. That's that's just the way it works. Uh, the, we, we've talked about this all the time in Pastor. You always emphasize this point about how there's this covenant, about how there's, there's, there's give and take and there's responsibility. And if we're fulfilling his will, then all the blessings that he promises uh, ultimately come true, especially on the national level. Okay, now we get to Deuteronomy 20, verse 5, and we're going to talk about Rabbi Lippmann's life story here and it's talking about those who want to serve god and study torah also have a job and also serve in the military and who's exempted from military service and who shouldn't be this is not just a question that was asked about three thousand years ago this is a question that you are dealing with in the modern state of israel so we'll talk about specific verses but set the whole scene for us in this topic we talk about the issue of of, go, of going to war, of who fights and, and who doesn't fight, uh, who should be part of the military uh, and who not. And the, the, the critical point uh, to understand is that God's army is God's army. <laughs> what I mean by that is uh, it has to be an army built on God's rules. He only wants certain types of people uh, to be uh, in that army. And, uh, for example, if a person has just started a new life and uh, hasn't, uh, hasn't gotten engaged but hasn't married his wife yet, uh, God doesn't want that person to be at, at battle because uh, he, doesn't want, he wants that marriage to be consummated. He wants those people to be together. Someone who has planted something, someone who has built a home but hasn't lived there. Uh, there's life as well, and God wants people to be focused on the military conquest and not on other things that are going on at home. So we do have specific allowances that are put here. Uh, what's amazing is it doesn't say anywhere that people can avoid war uh, because they're involved in spiritual pursuits. I think you learn from here that the greatest spiritual pursuit is protecting your people or the conquering and the settling of the land of Israel. What greater mitzvah, what greater spiritual action can a person be taking? And uh, finally, 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 though, the, the judges do say, or the police do say, uh, anybody who uh, is afraid for any reason, but especially, like I said before, because of spiritual reasons, go home. We don't need the numbers. It's ultimately God anyway. We need spiritual dominance, and that's ultimately what has to happen. So as Rabbi Lippman mentioned, when it comes to Deuteronomy chapter 20, you have these allowances for people to be exempt from service. 
a man who was engaged to be married. This was given a one-year exemption from military service. Someone who had just planted uh, crops was allowed to have a delay. A person who has built a new home but is not yet lived in or, or occupied the home. But this is saying... Everyone has a part to play. Everyone is responsible for the protection and the defense of our country, and we trust in God to provide for that. And yet there are those who will say, I don't want to go serve in the military because I want to study Torah all day. And that's where we get to the modern situation in the land of Israel. Rabbi, your own son dealing with this exact issue. So put this in a military conquest in present day terms. Today you have that issue of uh, who serves in the army. We have a country where there's a mandatory draft. Everyone has to be part of the military. And there's a lot of controversy in terms of who serves, who doesn't uh, do the ultra-Orthodox serve. Uh, They're studying in their rabbinic seminaries. Do the Arabs have to serve? There are people who try to get out of serving uh, as well. Uh, Well, we've educated, the way we've educated our son is that, uh, of course, studying the religious text is important, and he did go to yeshiva after high school, and he's going to go back to yeshiva after his army service. But the the highest spiritual order is to be able to defend and protect uh, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. It's a spiritual act that you do through physical uh, actions and as a soldier, uh, but it's ultimately spiritual. And uh, you actually see when they do their training and when they have their ceremonies how much spirituality uh, is woven into it. It's really beautiful uh, to see. And like I said, afterwards, he'll continue on in yeshiva, he'll be in reserves, uh, but it's a part of the fabric of the life here that people go to serve, and I think it's uh, the greatest honor. I I often describe it, you know, 70-plus years ago, uh, my family in Europe was was taken and slaughtered uh, without any ability to defend themselves. And now uh, my grandmother, may she live and be well, who was a survivor of Auschwitz, has lived to see a great-grandchild who puts on a uniform which says Israel Defense Forces. Uh, that certainly captures the special times in which we live and the special uh, nature of, of, of those who can serve in the Israeli army. So as we continue through Deuteronomy chapter 20, it talks about what kind of people should serve and what kind of people should be commanders in the military. They shall appoint commanders, verse 9, that are heads of the people. And how should they act, verse 10, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about, if it agrees to make peace, that all the people who are found shall become your forced labor and serve with you. But if it does not make peace with you, you will make war against it and besiege it. And then it says, the men who are defeated shall be slaughtered or killed, and the women and children should be allowed to survive. So this is setting up a system of what you might call just war or righteous war or a way to give religious and moral values to a combat situation. And it's very difficult uh, for us to relate to the idea of go through a city and and slaughter them. I like to highlight the first part, uh, which is not talked about very much, which is there was an offering of peace. There was an offering of trying to make things work out. But ultimately, uh, especially because of the spiritual spiritual situation in the land at that time, uh, if people weren't willing to make peace, which meant foregoing uh, on their pagan worship, which would influence the people of Israel, that would have meant the destruction of Israel, of the, of the Jewish people, and therefore that's why it had to be dealt with in the way that the Torah says to. 
and this severity of dealing with the enemy is somewhat related to the severity of dealing with the people who would lead you into witchcraft and sorcery from among your own people that we discussed earlier because of chapter 20 verse 18 Verse 17 says, you shall utterly destroy them, verse 18, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So it seems that the Torah here is valuing keeping the people of God holy so highly, more highly than we do, and less focus on make sure everybody who's living in sin and running from God is protected, we tend to reverse those. And I don't mean to diminish the value of human life at all, but we tend to say live and let live no matter how you live. And we diminish the value of living righteously, whereas the Torah here in Deuteronomy 20 seems to value living honorably and faithful to God as the first priority. And again, I don't want to project what the Torah has said in terms of how to deal with those who are ungodly, uh, but there certainly is a line that is drawn where we don't say, let everyone do whatever they choose. Um, there are things which are dangerous, dangerous to people, dangerous to societies, to breaking down uh, the moral fabric of society, breaking down the family uh, structure in society, and ultimately can lead to the decimation of a society. And therefore, we do have to have red lines where we say, uh, we're not going to accept uh, certain behaviors. We will speak out against people who are acting in certain ways. Uh, I don't think we'll act the way they were commanded then when it was the Word of God and then and the infant stages of the nation, uh, but certainly raising our voices and, and also pursuing things legislatively uh, to try to protect the society. I think we, we absolutely must learn that lesson uh, from this command. Let's go to the last two verses of Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says, When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. Verse 20, Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down that you may construct siege works. So I think there's a Christian term, Rabbi, that might apply here. We call it sometimes creation care it's the parallel to environmentalism which often rejects god when we talk about creation care we say the world that we have is not our god and we don't worship it but god gave it to us as a gift so we should take care of it and one of those things is don't cut down trees unnecessarily some of them will produce food for you but also it's just taking care of God's creation or the environment. And I know even before the founding of the modern state of Israel, the planting of trees that had been cut down by other cultures who inhabited the land is not just valued thousands of years ago. That's even valued in the modern state of Israel. Absolutely. And we do have a tradition that when God finished creation, he took Adam, he took him above the creation, showed him everything and said, I've done my part. Now you have to do yours. So it is environmentalism, but within the framework of this is God's creation, and we have to take care of it and, and nurture it. And, and certainly uh, the value of things growing in the beautiful world that could be uh, fruit trees and not fruit trees uh, is something which uh, we always have to take into account, and we never waste. We call it bal tashchit, don't destroy uh, God's beautiful creation. Um, when I was in the Knesset, I had the portfolio of the environment, and I thought it was such a privilege uh, in the land of Israel, the land that God has given to us, 
to have that responsibility. Uh, so it is something we take seriously. Sometimes I do hear people in spiritual circles being speaking very begrudgingly against those who care for the environment. I do agree with them when it's in a framework uh, outside of God, but the concept as a whole of, of being careful and, and preserving uh, this beautiful world which God has given us and not doing things to destroy it if we don't have to uh, is certainly a biblical value, which we see from these verses right here. And now we reach the last chapter of today's portion. It's the beginning section of Deuteronomy 21. It's verses 1 through 9. And it's talking about a man who is found murdered in the open country and no one knows who has struck him down. Then there's a legal system or an investigation system and a mourning process. Talk about this section here. A command which at first glance seems very difficult to understand, but actually emerges as a beautiful, beautiful lesson. You find a corpse, someone has uh, died, uh, uh, we don't know uh, what happened, how the person was killed. They find out what's the closest city uh, to where that corpse is, and the elders of that city have to go through a ceremony in which the declaration is made, we did not uh, shed this blood. You have to ask yourself, why would anybody suspect the elders of the city of being the ones who shed his blood? And the commentaries explain, it's not that we actually think they actively killed him. The question is, did they give this person the proper escort out of the city so that he could be part of the community and even have the spiritual protection of the community? And if they did, then okay, then they're not held accountable for what might have happened to him. But if they didn't, that was a lacking. And the lesson that we learned from this, though, is quite remarkable. You can be removed from your community, but as long as you identify yourself with that community, I mean, you can be removed uh, physically, geographically, but if you identify with them, you still have the protection, the spiritual aura of that community. And that's ultimately the lesson that we have to learn uh, from this portion. I'll go a step further. When going back to Genesis for a moment, when Joseph uh, is the leader of Egypt and uh, uh, reveals himself to his brothers and sends them back up to the land of Canaan, to Israel, to see Jacob, he actually, according to our tradition, sent a message about this commandment that he somehow had studied with his father. And his message was, even though I've been physically away from you, spiritually I've still felt connected, gave Jacob the ability to uh, uh, see the light and, and feel excited and, and, and uh, desire to go see Joseph because he realized that spiritually uh, he was still very strong. So it's a very physical process, a very physical situation, which has great spiritual lessons to it. We've talked a lot about civil government. We've talked about kings. We've talked about the responsibility to serve in the military and the responsibility to avoid fellowship with evildoers. So we've covered a lot of ground. Rabbi, sum it up for us today. The, the combination of the, of the spiritual and the civil uh, together, that they work together. Uh, it's not one without the other. Uh, they both complement each other. And that's very much, I think, the message uh, of this week's portion, which starts out talking about judges and policemen that we place upon ourselves, which can also be applied in a, a spiritual and physical realm. And I will say one last thing. Uh, some of the commentaries on a just a deeper level say, when it says in the very beginning, that you should place judges and policemen in all of your gates, they say that also applies to ourselves as people, that we should be placing our own judges and our own police on ourselves uh, to make sure that we always act properly and in accordance with God's Word. 
This does conclude our conversation about this week's Torah portion coming from Deuteronomy chapter 16 through 21. The passage is called Shoftim in Hebrew, which means judges. And we can learn a lot about how to live our lives today by reading the ancient truth of God's Word. Rabbi, always a privilege to study with you. And I want to say Shabbat Shalom to you and your family. Thank you so much, Pastor. Always a pleasure as well. Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.